0: Hey guys, welcome to the Learn Feng Shui podcast, where you'll learn Feng Shui from a classical point of view, taking out the myth and superstition. So if you're interested in learning Feng Shui, Chinese astrology, all things Chinese metaphysics, as well as the superstitions and myths that connect it all, you'll enjoy learning Feng Shui with me. She is dispersed by the wind and it gathers at the boundaries of water. This is a quote from Pu's burial book, one of the first feng shui texts ever recorded. And it's also where the name feng shui comes from, literally translating to wind and water. I'm Candice Berlanga. I'm your host for the Learn Feng Shui podcast. I'm also a feng shui practitioner and a red ribbon professional with the International Feng Shui Guild, as well as a... Reluctant Feng Shui Master. <laughs> Today I'm going to cover all topics about wind in Feng Shui, um, something I never really considered until I started really researching and I started reading a very interesting book. Today I'm going to be covering wind in Chinese medicine, how our ancient ancestors um, oriented the streets with their local wind conditions. Using a compass very similar to the feng shui lo pan, I'm also going to cover local and wind lore and wind traditions, as well as the superstition of Korean fan death. So, when we look at feng shui, we tend to think of it as this um, thing of you know, aesthetically pleasing design, decluttering, and um, concepts like the elements, right? But, 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 but uh, when we first developed feng shui, um, our ancient ancestors, we didn't know we were doing feng shui. We didn't have aesthetically pleasing caves, right? (laughs) So um, our feng shui, it really came from our external environment and looking at which conditions would protect us the most. And even to this modern day of feng shui, we look at things like um, protecting our, our backs, right? We look at having a supportive back behind our home. And we look look at things like our headboard and putting our back against a solid wall when we're sleeping and putting our back to a solid wall when we're working at a desk. So this is where this this concept actually came from was the need to protect ourselves and feel safe and supported. So when we started looking at how our ancient ancestors moved from the nomadic and hunter-gatherer lifestyle into the agricultural society and building of later to towns and cities, right? Um, they really picked their locations based on what would keep them safe. And so when they, you know, picked it, they obviously natural resources was a big factor and keeping safe against harsh wind conditions, um, environment, and of course predators. And so really fast forwarding that concept into kind of a modern society, we can look at the ancient Greek and Roman builders of the time and look at how they actually Oriented streets based on their local wind conditions. So they would look at the wind conditions of the area, and they would build streets and and buildings and whatnot to actually block these winds, so they weren't getting the harsh winds in their in their cities and their homes. Um, so let's take a look at what is called the Vitruvian Windrose. So this is from the ancient builder Vitruvius, the ancient architect from Rome. Uh, we're going to talk about how he uh, took into account local wind conditions and oriented streets to block the wind before we jump into wind direction let's kind of talk about the different geographical directions and so uh this does play into account i promise (laughs) so when uh, looking at different like mythology and lore every society throughout history has had like a deity a guardian or um, characteristics that they've given the four different directions. So, you know, north, south, east, and west. So um, Feng Shui is a perfect example of this. You know, if we think about the north, we think of the element of water, right? It's associated with these characteristics. Or if we think of the south, it's associated with the characteristics of fire and red and, you know, um, right? And in some traditions, it can be your reputation sector. And right. And so they have these different um, associations with each direction. And In turn, they also had different association with the different winds that came from that direction. So, and this is very prevalent in like Hindu, Native American, but even some kind of hometown lore, There's different weather lore associated with uh, different winds blowing at different times of year. And we're going to get into that in a minute, but kind of going back to Vitruvius, the way he actually oriented the streets was based on the eight winds. And so as opposed to having... I'm um, just four different directions that the winds came from, he actually used, you know, the, the intercardinal directions of Northeast and Southeast and Northwest and Southwest. So thus leading to the eight directions. So I remember referencing the book called creating places of power by Nigel Pinnock, and I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a really great book. So it states here that Vitruvius used the standard eight winds diagram as a means of orienting streets in the town. He arrived at this not by direct observation of the wind itself, but he drew a diagram on the ground. And its orientation was based on the erection of a sundial, or what here is labeled a gnomon, to measure opposing limbs of the sun. And it says here that it was a traditional means of finding the north-south, what is called the wind, right? So it was a north-south wind, but it was the geographical North and South. And so he would then take that and then he would take into account local wind conditions and then he'd orient the streets based on this, this diagram. Looking at the different compasses and the different orientations, when we're looking at the directions and directional orientation of buildings and stuff um, in this book, it's really crazy because uh, what I've discovered is almost every society throughout history has had some sort of way um, of divining and finding the, the best way to build homes for them based on their geographic locations and so again this is the practice of geomancy and it's not you know exclusive to uh feng shui so uh, but it's just very interesting the very very um specific connections and how similar it looks to the feng shui compasses and the orientation of buildings in feng shui I do think it is in man's just kind of innate nature, you know, in humankind's nature to want to harness the natural features and the natural... Um, kind of elements from their environment. And this does include wind if we think of buildings like windmills, which I'll cover in just a minute. But I thought this was really interesting uh, doing wind research. I did come across several um, references to something called wind scoops or wind catchers. And so here reading from Arch Daily, which I'll link to below, it says a wind catcher known as a wind tower or wind scoop was used as a traditional cooling architectural element for thousands of years in countries that had severely hot climates such as the Middle East and Africa. So some historians and archaeologists credit Persians as the inventors of these wind catchers but um, because after they discovered a 3,000 BC year old Persian fire temple that featured chimney-like structures but had no traces of ash in them. And of course, um, I don't know how cold it actually gets there, but I'm not sure they would f- use fireplaces. But if you think of it as like a reverse fireplace, um, you know, a, a sort of um, a chimney-like structure on top of a building with a bunch of holes in it um, to redirect the wind. So yeah, natural ventilation. It does say here that, as explained in our article about natural ventilation and its use in different contexts, air movement is created by the rising of warm air and lowering of cool air. So as the air above gets warmer, it rises and creates areas of low pressure, and when the air continues to rise, it cools and moves towards water surfaces Mm, interesting where it falls and creates areas of high pressure and pushes cold air towards the land and so this creates uh the wind and so i suppose that um these wind catchers act in a similar way it says a wind catcher is basically a chimney-like structure made of clay wood or bricks and it's constructed on the rooftop of house mosques or storage rooms to harness the cool breezes it directs towards the interior space The way the towers work is by directing cool air as it's circulating at higher levels downwards through these ventilations and of course, cooling the air down as it comes in. So we thought our ancient ancestors were not advanced, but I would beg to differ on this one. Once the cool air enters the space, the warm air circulating inside the interior space is actually pushed out through these openings created on the opposite side of the wind catcher. So in areas without a cool breeze, a wind catcher acts as a chimney and pushes warm air upwards um, and out through these openings. And so it doesn't necessarily push it inside the building, but it, um, it's it's like circulating the air, which I thought was super interesting. And again, really looking at the way they built these and oriented them to catch their local wind, I just think is amazing. And kind of looking at the history of wind power, I'm just going to link all my websites below because I'm using a lot of different resources today. It talks about of the history kind of of windmills and how it used to progress society. And so here it says people have been using wind energy to propel boats along the Nile River as early as 5000 BC. And by 200 BC, simple wind power water pumps were used in ancient China and windmills with woven reed blades were used for grinding grain in Persia and the Middle East. New ways to use wind energy eventually spread around the world, and by the 11th century, people in the Middle East were using wind pumps and windmills extensively for food production. Merchants and crusaders brought wind technology then to Europe, and the Dutch developed large wind pumps to drain lakes and marshes in the Rhine River Delta. Immigrants from Europe eventually took the wind energy to the Western Hemisphere, and American colonists... Um, Use windmills to grind grain, pump water, and cut wood at sawmills. Homesteaders and ranchers installed thousands of wind pumps as they settled along the western United States. And by the late 1800s and early 1900s, small wind electric generators and wind turbines were very widely used. So um, yeah, I just think it's really interesting how, of course, again, I think it's just in the nature of man to say, hey, there's this natural resource, let's use it and see if we can... um, you know, uh, better our lives and you know, work harder, not, uh, work smarter, not harder, right? Not, not work harder, <laughs> work smarter and not harder. So I definitely think it's one of those things where they were able to like, Hey, we can use this wind power to, you know, grind grain. And, and they just kind of got creative with it, which I think is really amazing. And, um, again, I, I live in one of the windiest cities in the United States and we actually have a wind power museum that boasts about 180 windmills. And I've been there and it's actually, very interesting how they uh, used it to in all sorts of agricultural production so very interesting uh history of wind power and wind utilization and again I linked uh, the article below if you want to go take a look at it I highly suggest it's really interesting and it has a lot of detail because there is there was even different things like the size of different wind scoops within the the you know the towns or there would be things like um you know they would put the wind scoops in certain uh, ways in certain directions and also make them certain shapes to catch the wind a little bit better as well as locate um, the wind tunnel. So it would catch like the underground water supply for the homes. So a lot of times the homes were built over like a cistern or like maybe like a flowing stream. Um, I think we refer to them as like root cellar sometimes or like a, you know, <laughs> the flowing stream underneath the home. And so um, yeah, they would actually just situate and build these over the, the water, Um, in a certain way, that way it would uh, kind of catch and cool the air down as it came back up. And before we stray from the topic of feng shui and talk about other things here, um, let's talk about the golden verse that states, Yang House, Hall Wind is the one, piercing Shachi number one. So what does that mean? So this is actually from the golden verses, the quote unquote rules of feng shui. And what it is referring to is a house that has a really strong crosswind in it. And usually the doors are facing each other directly. And so this creates like a tunnel effect where the wind blows through really strongly. Um, but it does have to meet some criteria to actually be a true piercing hall wind shawl. And so this usually occurs when two doors that are the same size. So you have a front door and a back door that are exactly the same size and they face each other directly with no walls in between so if there's a wall in between um, then you're fine or if you even just see it or if off-center a little bit you're okay but if it's two doors that face each other directly that means you could be receiving this sha chi um, also the doors would have to be open all the time so if I mean who keeps their doors open 24 hours a day <laughs> so um, if you have two doors that are open all the time and the wind is really strong and you get a strong crosswind that blows all the way through that means you have a piercing hall shaw, and so what this means is that you'll have a trouble accumulating finances so remember earlier I stated that chi is dispersed by the wind it gathers at the boundaries of water and so this holds true for places that have a lot of high wind or if the wind blows through your house very quickly like that and that's why it's considered a sha chi and so it just means you can't gather chi in your home and you will have a tr- trouble also accumulating finances um, yeah so that is called a piercing hall wind. And when I first learned this, one of the things that I, I remembered is being a little girl and these had these um, sort of outdoor markets and they would have like little vendors and shops and stuff set up right on the inside. But there were like these big tunnels with big arches and, um, and you could just see through straight to the other side and it was just opened. And I remember um, stepping in those as a little girl and having a very strong crosswind. So it was nice and cool. But now that I think about on that, I always wonder if um, the vendors were very successful. So <laughs> yeah, that is called a piercing hall wind shawl. to get into the wind lore and weather lore Um, so this kind of really segues it nicely so we have to take into account also local wind traditions and local wind um, you know uh, literally how our regional weather is. So, um, even here in Texas, I mean, you know, so I live, um, you know, probably Northwest Texas, closer to the New Mexico border. So if I go up a little bit North to Amarillo, we're going to get, you know, cold, it's a little bit cooler and the weather, um, we get more snow up there. And so if we go farther South, they're already experiencing and in full swing of spring and they already have blooms everywhere. So, um, even, you know, regionally, um, and, and within the same state, we can have different weather conditions, right? And so, I think this is important to note um, here. Again, quoting from the Creating Places of Power book, it says: Although since Vitruvius's time, the best architects have recognized that the Vitruvian wind rose is rooted in its place of origin. So, the less able have applied this wind reference unthinkingly to others in appropriate places. So, in this way, they were used as far as England, Russia, and South America, where the real wind rose bore no resemblance to the local conditions that vitruvius was describing in his part of italy so this is the same literalist thinking that bugs those who would transplant a metaphysical system from one place to another regardless of its suitability and he does argue here i'm not sure i agree 100 but this is his thoughts he says it is prevalent today with the literalist practitioners of feng shui where descriptions originating and tailored from one place to another uh, sorry, from one place to China is carried to another place without any modification. And so I, I, I do think that he has a point there because, um, I know I've asked this question before to other Feng shui practitioners and I'm like, Hey, if we're experiencing spring here and we're basing our, um, activations and our adjustments and everything off of spring what about people in the southern hemisphere and i've been told that the chi is universal and um, i know some uh, people that practice feng shui in like brazil and stuff and um yeah and so and they've practiced just the same as i do and it's it works for them but um of course we know i've, I've, and I've covered before on the podcast the uh famous feng shui master, Roger Green. Um, He developed a system of feng shui for the Southern Hemisphere. Um, And so, you know, uh, and I think that the more I think about it, the more valid I think that, um, you know, kind of, altering and maybe even adjusting feng shui to where we're at, especially when we're talking in terms of like a uh, literal geomancy and tapping into qi or energy spots, uh, that we really do have to take into account our local wind uh, or not necessarily wind, but local conditions. Um, and also, um, I do think that the segues us nicely into looking at local wind lore and different, um, cultures throughout history and what kind of, uh, wind lore they had. So let's go into that. So here it says that country aura folklore and regional farmer calendars contain much relevant wind lore. There are numerous vernacular rhymes that recall the effect of various winds. And I'm going to also be looking through, um, because here in the U.S. we have the Farmer's Almanac. It's been around since, what, 1818. And they have a lot of different lore, folklore, and a weather lore type of things in their website and in their almanac. And so I'll kind of be covering some of that. Um, so there's different types of, of lore. Like there's some that kind of talks about, um, you know, if the day is, uh, the day you're born, if the wind's blowing a certain direction, that gives you certain characteristics. Or if um, the wind blows a certain way on New Year's night, that means it sets the tone for the year. Um, So there's all kinds of different, uh, you know, all kinds of different lore. So let's kind of get into the specifics. So an old Scottish rhyme, it tells that the direction of the wind for New Year's actually sets the tone for the future year. And it says here, if on New Year's night, The wind blows south, it betokeneth warm and growth. If west, much milk and fish in the sea, if north, much cold and snow there will be, if east, the trees will bear much fruit, and northeast, flee at man and brute. And I'm just continuing to read on here. It says another Celtic poem, The Winds of Fate, is similar and it tells that the wind blowing at one's birth actually determines one's future life, a parallel and complement to natal astrology. The first breath that a baby takes is the air of one of these winds and it will affect him or her throughout their life. And another correlation and connection I find interesting to Feng Shui is that a lot of the um, poets and writers of the time um, actually attributed the winds uh, with colors, like they connected the winds to different colors, which I thought was um, pretty interesting. And so um, in this famous poem by Irish poet Ethna Carberry, and in parentheses it says Anna McManus, I'm not, I guess she maybe had to alter you know, ego for, for writing. I don't know. It says she wrote about the quality of the winds, uh, with their traditional colors. And it says green shears of hope rise round like the grass blaze after drought. And there blows red wind from the East, a white wind from the South, a Brown wind from the West. But the black, black wind from the northern hills, how can you love it best? And of course I did, you know, think that was pretty interesting. Of course we attributed the different directions and the different sectors and stuff to different colors with feng shui. And of course black does represent that element of water in the north. And it says here that in his masterpiece, The Third Policeman, written in 1940 and published in 1967, the Irish humorist writer, Flann O'Brien, um, and then he had a different name too, Brian O'N O'Noblin. I don't know. <laughs> different. Describe the colors of the four winds similar uh, in a similar manner. O'Brien called the north wind a hard black, and the east was a deep purple. The south was a shining silver, and the west was an amber. So if you live in America, you've probably heard of the Farmer's Almanac. So the Farmer's Almanac is really pretty um, popular for having a lot of different weather lore and being really pretty specifically accurate on their weather forecast for the entire year. Um, I kid you not, if you look through for your region, it's usually pretty accurate. But they have a lot of weather lore and they have a lot of things like, um, you know, when to get a haircut or when to... uh, plant and when to go fishing and so they also of course the weather lore does cover fishing but there is specific wind um, directions that support fishing more so here's the poem it says when the wind is in the north the skillful fisher goes not forth when the wind is in the east tis good for neither man nor beast when the wind is in the south it blows the flies in the fish's mouth and when the wind is in the west There it be the very best. So look for wind conditions to be blowing from the West to do your best fishing. Quickly shifting gears and looking at Chinese medicine, I'm just going to touch on it real quick because it's just such a vast topic and I honestly don't know enough about it. So from my understanding though, um, uh, the the presence of wind in Chinese medicine causes illness. And so uh, before we kind of touch on that, we're going to kind of look back through and look at the representation, the very essence of the implication or that, you know, this uh, trigram uh, looking at the I Ching. And so let's take it back to the I Ching, which is the very foundation of Chinese metaphysics. It's the um, foundation of which, you know, feng shui and batza and all the other systems are built upon. And so looking at the representation of what wood means, or sorry, it is the element of wood, but what wind means um, is a very fast action. And so when we look at the I Ching and we're looking at a reading, uh, you may know that from, you know, different uh, it's a different system of divination. And so when we look at I Ching and we're doing a I Ching reading, uh, one of the things that we kind of look at is the elements of wood, which are um, uh, the trigrams of thunder and wind, um, and represent also the east and southeast. So when we look at these, um, it really does represent a really fast action or something quickly changing. Um, so that's what uh, thunder and wind represent in the I Ching. And so uh, kind of translating that and putting it into Chinese medicine, um, they really did believe that different winds and different attributes of the winds could cause illness. It wasn't really that you had wind inside your body, literally, but rather that these winds could cause illnesses. And so they would, um, you know, really look at, you know, if especially in the winter, like so if you're in the winter time, but the air is unseasonably warm, you know, that could be causing an illness. Or if you're looking at the, uh, summertime and the air is unusually, you know, cold and moist or something like that, then that could cause a certain illness. And of course, um, we often hear that wind causes illness in your body. And again, not literally the wind, but it's um, more, the wind more representing a fast action or a sudden illness occurring. So um, from my understanding, that's what uh, wind represents in Chinese medicine. And I know there's a ton more, but I'm gonna leave it there. We'll take a quick little sponsor break and come back with our folklore Friday segment, Korean Fan Death. Can sleeping with a fan on kill you? So not much to do with feng shui, but I thought it was a fun little folktale slash urban legend to include on the show today. The topic of what is called sometimes Korean fan death or just fan death. So here from HowStuffWorks.com, will sleeping with your fan on kill you? Sleeping with a gentle breeze on, of a fan on a hot summer night is one of life's greatest pleasures. Unless you subscribe to the belief of fan death, that is where this pleasure will leave you dead by morning. This superstition has been passed down through generations, and mostly in just Korean families, it appears. According to folklore, the only way to survive sleeping with a fan on is to open the window or use a fan that has an automatic shut off so it doesn't run all night. The origin of the killer story is murky, but does it have any kernels of truth? First, we'll look at all the ways that fans may be trying to murder you in your sleep. One urban legend claims that the fan's blades actually chop up oxygen into carbon dioxide, making the air in your bedroom impossible to breathe and therefore a fatal source. So that came from Snopes, but not putting much um, into that. It says another says that a fan blowing on you all night can make your body temperature drop so low that it'll actually cause hypothermia and death, or a fan constantly circulating very hot air won't actually cool you off, but the hot air will just suffocate and dehydrate you to the point of death. Fans cannot cause hypothermia though. Um, they don't cool the air, they just actually circulate it. Um, unless you're talking about one of them wind scoops with the water below, right? <laughs> and because no house is airtight, you can't suffocate from hot air or lack of oxygen. The issue of fan death was a concern in 2005 and the Korean Consumer Protection Board issued warnings entitled be aware of summer hazards. One of these warnings regarding electric fans advised leaving doors open while using a fan while sleeping, citing possible dehydration, hypothermia and decreased oxygen. The warning also attributed 20 deaths from these fans. From the years of 2003 to 2005. However, nobody's actually been able to confirm these deaths. Nonetheless, the beliefs persist even today. So how did this superstition begin? Some people believe it grew from a 1970s campaign to conserve electricity, or it can just be considered a coincidence. Someone found a dead body in a closed room with a running fan and made a hasty conclusion. More likely, that person died from natural causes, such as a heart attack. And in one case, the man fell asleep in front of a fan after a night of heavy drinking. So so it says here. So interestingly enough, however, the Environmental Protection Agency states that excessive heat events guidebook that people should not be in direct flow of portable electric fans towards yourself when the room temperature is hotter than 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius. It says this warning came about during heat waves of the 80s and 90s when evidence suggests that fan and enclosed rooms would actually evaporate moisture from the body faster in heat indexes that were uh, over 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius. So it was said that it was just circulating really hot air and so it was said to maybe dehydrate you a little bit. So it says here, so could your Korean grandmother be onto something after all? And just to kind of round it out with a couple of feng shui based uh tips for fans, um, it is said that when you sleep with a ceiling fan directly above your body at night, that this is, you know, bad forms, feng shui. It actually puts too much uh energy over your body while it's sleeping. Um, and you know, is supposed to lead to some health issues. I don't know. I've slept with a fan over my bed for a hundred million years. As long as I've been alive, I've always had a ceiling fan in my room. So I'm not, uh, a hundred percent sold in that idea. I am, however, uh, would like to caution against, you know, um, some people have those air conditioning units, um, that are, you know, they're plugged in whatever, and they're placed on on the wall, like they're mounted into the wall, and usually pretty high up in the room so it can circulate the air around. So I would say I don't suggest sleeping underneath one of these air conditioning units because it could lead to a restless night's sleep. All right, I'll catch you guys next week. Be sure to check the link in the show notes for all the sources. Lots of sources um, were cited today and read off of. So go ahead and check those out if any of those interested to you. And of course, for free energy mapping of your space, just message me directly. For free energy mapping of your floor plan, please check the link in the show notes. To support today's podcast, go to learnfengshui.com, sign up for emails, leave a review and share with your family and friends.